right, Genesis 35. That's where we pick back up. And you'll notice Genesis 35 is quite a contrast, uh, particularly from chapter 34. Chapter 34 was probably about one of the most godless chapters that we've seen uh, here in the book of Genesis so far. There's no mention of the name of God. And chapter 34 was a chapter, remember, that was filled with just lust and selfishness and, uh, and greed and anger and just out-of-control behavior, and remember, all of that was tied back to, unfortunately, uh, the error of God's own servant Jacob, as God had called Jacob to return back to his homeland, back to the territory of his father, the place from uh, whence uh, he was raised and from when he came. God had him away for a season, but God now, as a part of the call of God upon his life, has told Jacob to go back to his particular homeland and Jacob unfortunately sort of in half-hearted obedience began the transition back with his family but remember didn't fully obey uh, God's calling and God's plan for his life and he sort of stopped short and whenever we have incomplete obedience in our lives that is always really the seedbed for a lot of problems in our lives and really a deterioration and a spiral downward spiritually and many times the effects of that are not just limited to us they also carry over into those who are connected to us uh, our spouses our children our, our families other people who are just connected to us relationally uh, kind of like Jonah remember when Jonah was not where he was supposed to be and God was trying to redirect him back to where he was supposed to be going, everybody on board with Jonah uh, was unfortunately a part of the casualty as Jonah himself was going through the storm. Everybody on board with him was uh, kind of participating and having to suffer the consequences. They became sort of collateral damage in the process, and no man sins alone. Whenever we are out of tune with the will of God or whenever we're not fully obeying God, we not only put ourselves in a bad place, but we really put everyone else at risk around us because we're not where we're supposed to be. And that was the case with Jacob. Remember, Jacob, instead of going back uh, to the area of Hebron, Bethel, that kind of general vicinity of where he had come from, instead we're told that as he went back uh, into the land uh, that he found himself sort of settling into the area of Shechem. Uh, and there in Shechem, he actually, it tells us, bought a piece of property and he kind of settled in there. It seems, uh, commentators believe, that he spent actually almost 10 years there. So for about a 10-year period of time, he's been in the area of Shechem. But as the direct result of him settling into Shechem, remember, it was a pagan area. Uh, it was filled with all types of Canaanite forms of idolatry. It seemed to have just been a very immoral in ungodly territory, and Jacob settles in there and allows his family to be there, and unfortunately, uh, it had a tremendous impact as the ways of paganism and the ungodliness of that territory began to infiltrate Jacob's family life, and we saw, remember, his daughter Dinah, it says, went out among the daughters of the land, uh, and her uh, moral purity was compromised. It tells us that she ended up either being raped uh, or somehow uh, consenting uh, either way in some type of an illicit sexual relationship with one of the princes of the land. And, and her sexual purity was lost, his daughter. Uh, the brothers then found themselves uh, in really just out-of-control behavior as they saw their father's passivity 
they wanting to uh, sort of take up the defense of their sister's honor, came up with this plot to take matters into their own hands, and they, as a result, uh, came up with this horrific plot, which ended up in them actually murdering all of the males of the city. So talk about just a, a complete bloodbath that they got themselves into. And it seems that the family dwelling there began to fall into all types of idolatry and compromise. And it really was just a very sad and a tragic thing. And whenever we, especially all the more, I think, as men and as spiritual leaders, uh, are in a place of compromise, boy, it really pollutes the entire household. But thankfully, God is gracious. And when God sees us take our little tours of backsliding and compromise, the wonderful thing is he never leaves us there comfortable. He will nag at us and persist and continually call us and try and draw us back out of there. In fact, you'll notice when you go through the Old Testament, particularly one of God's, uh, it seems, repeated exhortations to the children of Israel throughout history constantly is return, return. God's God's uh, watchword to the backslider is return you backsliding children. He says, and I'll heal your backsliding. Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah 4 there where God is beckoning the people despite their unfaithfulness. God is always saying return, come back. And it seems to be the indication of us that because again the Bible portrays us like sheep, uh, sheep tend to wander. You know, I love that great hymn where there's that refrain that says, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And, and you know, when I sing that song, that hymn, and so many of the hymns have such precious doctrine in them, my heart resonates with that uh, because that is the reality of my heart. I love the Lord, but yet my heart is prone in its sinfulness uh, to wander, to become attached to the world, you know, the compromises, the pollutions of this world. It's always beckoning for our attention, trying to draw us away. And sadly, sometimes we can begin to settle into a place of spiritual compromise. We begin to cool off. We begin to depart from the Lord, to leave our first love like the Church of Ephesus did. Jesus rebuked in the book of Revelation. And so often the Lord is calling us back. He's He's wanting us to have an experience of spiritual renewal. And I think that we many times need that repeatedly in our lives. And the wonderful thing is chapter 35 is a picture of that very thing. It's a picture of God by his spirit reaching out, speaking to a man who's in a place where he shouldn't be, where his family is suffering as a result because he is not in the place where God has told him to be at. Uh, and as a result of that, his family is struggling, they're suffering morally and spiritually, and God speaks to him and says, Jacob, this is enough. You've got to get out of here. You have got to get back on track, and you need to get to where God has told you to be. And, and this is not where my intention is for you to be at. And, and God speaks to Jacob very powerfully in relation to that. If you notice here in verse uh, 1, that God said to Jacob, it says, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. The idea is not where you're at. Go and dwell there instead. And make an altar there to God. And remember, Jacob, when he settled into Shechem, it tells us in chapter uh, 
34, or chapter 33, excuse me, that when he went to Shechem, the last thing it tells us, chapter 33, is he erected an altar there to call it El Elohi Israel, in other words, God, the God of Israel, indicating to us that it's almost as if, you know, Jacob is so much like us. Here he is, he's living in the world, he's in a place of compromise, he's not where he's supposed to be, but yet... He's erecting an altar to the Lord because no doubt like you and I, he's thinking, well, at least if I have some form of sacrifice to God, I'm doing some spiritual duty, I'm giving my you know, spiritual allegiance to God somehow, I can live in compromise as long as I still have some kind of an altar uh, where I'm going through spiritual practice and routine and ritual, much like you and I. Many times we want to justify, here we are, we're living in compromise We've got one foot or both feet in the world, but we. Well, but I, mean, I still, I still go pay my homage on Sundays. I still show up at church every Sunday. I, I listen to the, you know, the nice message, and I sing some of the worship songs. I mean, yeah, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend all week long, or I mean, yeah, I'm not reading my Bible all week and I'm cussing at work, or I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, cheating here and living carnally, but, but I mean, I've got, I'm, but I'm, I'm still going and paying homage to the altar, and God says that, that doesn't, doesn't mean anything to me means absolutely nothing. And, and when God wants us, he wants all of us. He wants our obedience, not just some sacrifice as if somehow God can be bribed. And, and tragically, we can, we can do that. You know, very easily, especially all the more as God's children, we can be very guilty of thinking somehow that, that, that that's okay, that we can sort of live in compromise, but yet at the same time, as long as we you know, stay going to church, well, that's okay. And and, and, and that's not what God's intention is. God wants all of us. He wants our entire heart. He wants our complete devotion and commitment to him in our lives. And here God is speaking to Jacob and he's saying, Jacob, get up, go to Bethel, dwell there, make an altar there. You need to be where I want you to be and be in worship. I want you to be in the place of obedience, he says. And there, from a place of obedience, then your worship will be acceptable. Interesting, when Jacob erected the altar in chapter 33, that was his own idea. Here God is asking for the altar to be erected because God says, look, your worship means nothing if you're living in compromise. If you're living in compromise, you're worshiping with your lips, but your heart is far from me, Jesus would tell us. And here God says, I want you to go to the place of obedience and there erect an altar. There your worship is acceptable. He says, to that place where I appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. So again, God calls Jacob to a time of spiritual renewal. And take notice, who's the initiator here? Again, if you want to look at this as a chapter of a picture of personal revival, spiritual renewal, take notice that revival and spiritual renewal is not something that we initiate. It's something that God initiates. I think there are certain... Uh, you know, uh, dynamics, maybe, you know, factors, components, you can say, to a renewal personally or to a spiritual revival, but we can't make it happen. Uh, we can't initiate it. It's something that God initiates by his spirit by reaching out and initiating. I think we should be seeking God for it. We should be crying out to God for it, recognizing that we need it in our lives. But ultimately, it's the Lord who is the one who initiates and brings the onset of it. Again, Jesus just told, remember the disciples we saw Sunday morning, he told them, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. And, and what were they doing? They were together in one accord, praying, waiting on God in one accord in prayer, and when God saw fit, then God poured out the Spirit. 
but but it was God who was the one that initiated it was the God who one who caused it and here God speaks to Jacob and he's calling him to this place of of return and to spiritual renewal and he says Jacob this involves something notice it involves getting up from where he currently was which was where he wasn't supposed to be in his life and again not necessarily saying that's geographically sometimes that's just circumstantially it's where we're at spiritually. We're in a place of apathy or complacency or, or compromise. But notice, arise and go. In other words, get up. And a part of God calling us to spiritual renewal involves us getting up and getting out from where we are and going to the place where God wants us to be. And God says, look, you, where you're at is not where you're supposed to be. And you know that. This is not my plan for you. This is not where you're supposed to be in your heart or in your life spiritually. You're in a place of compromise. You're in a place of half-hearted obedience. So he says, get up and go to Bethel. And, and again, where was Bethel? Bethel was that place where Jacob, 20 years prior to this, had his first real encounter and experience with God. Remember, it was at Bethel where the Lord opened up his eyes, let him see into the realm of the Spirit. He saw the, 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 the ladder extending up into the heavens, and he saw the angels of God ascending and descending. And it's where Jacob, really the first time in his life, sensed and experienced the presence of God for himself. And he said, surely God is in this place, and I didn't even know it. I had no idea that God was so real, that he was so involved in my life. And it was there that Jacob made a... A vow to God. He made a commitment to God where his heart became dedicated to the Lord. And God saying, Jacob, that's what I want. I want you to go back to that place. And it's not so much that place geographically. It, it was it, because, again, Jacob said that Bethel, he called it Bethel, and Bethel means the house of God. Well, that he called the house of God a place in the middle of a wilderness where he was sleeping on a rock. Again, the presence of God is not limited to a structure, a geographic location. What Jacob recognized was the presence of God is available everywhere, and it's a matter of our heart condition and where we're at in relation to God vertically. It's not geographically. So though he's telling him to go back to Bethel, it's not about the geographic location. It's about the spiritual experience that he had there and that he wasn't having at this point in his time. And it's interesting. Here he is. He's just a matter of miles away. And for years he's living somewhere, dwelling somewhere, instead of being in the place where God wanted him to be. And how interesting, go up to Bethel, the house of God. And many times, I think when God's bringing a spiritual renewal into our lives, sometimes there is a practical connection there where God says, look, uh, part of this spiritual renewal is uh, you need to get back to the house of God because that's where my presence dwells. God's presence dwells among his people. Jesus said, when two or three gather my name, there I am in the midst. And the Bible makes it very clear that, that the fullness of God, Ephesians 1 talks about, you know, dwells amidst the body of Christ. And many times when God is calling us to a place of spiritual renewal, God says, look, you need to get up. And you need to get back into the house of God. You need to get back into the place of fellowship. You know, how many times I talk to somebody who's struggling or backsliding, and, and you know, one of the questions, are you having your devotions? Are you going to church? Uh, uh, well, I really want to get right with God. Okay, well... Start reading your Bible, start praying, and get into the get back into fellowship with the body of Christ. And how often? Those who do that, it's amazing, oy vey, how spiritual renewal starts to happen in their life as the power of God's word and the presence of God among his people brings renewal and, and how those who 
for their own selfish reasons, choose to stay in complacency and compromise and make excuses and don't start reading the word and don't start praying and don't get back plugged into the body of Christ, stay in a place of compromise. And here God calls Jacob to get back to that place, he says, where I appeared to you. That is where we had that experience. And here God's beckoning him to return to where he once was spiritually. And notice in relation to that, Verse 2, you see now Jacob making a response. And notice, he's taken hold of this himself, and because he has, notice what he does. He implements it right away in his family life. You can tell this man has heeded what God's done in his heart because it now overflows directly into his immediate family. It says, And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then he says, let us arise, he says, let us arise and go up to Bethel and make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way in which I have gone. So Jacob begins to recognize again what he seems to have lost his bearing in regards to God's work in his life. And he now comes to this place where he calls his family to a time of decision. And he says, listen, he speaks to his whole household, that is his wives, his children, to the servants, those who are with him. And notice he does two things. He tells them, first of all, that they needed to remove what stood in the way of them having a healthy relationship with the Lord. And then secondly, he says, and then we need to return to putting a priority on worship in our lives. In verse 2, he says, first of all, to his household, notice that he says, put away the foreign gods among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Interesting. Apparently, there were idols and foreign gods that had come into the life of the family of Jacob. We know, remember, that Rachel, when they left to return to go back to his homeland, remember, she stole her father's idols. Remember, she was hiding them when Laban came. She sat on them and said, Father, I apologize. I, I can't get up and greet you right now. I'm having my you know, monthly menstrual cycle, so therefore I can't get up. And these idols that she had stolen from her father's house, and we're not told why, were there underneath this saddle. Now, potentially did they then begin to become a problem where she was bringing idolatry into the home life, and again, Jacob didn't deal with that. And because of his spiritual passivity and because he was in a place of compromise, he didn't say to his wife, look, these things cannot be in our home. This, this is unacceptable. This is foreign. This is a form of worship and devotion to something else other than to the one true God that we serve, and I will not accept this in our home. And instead of having a spiritual backbone and being a man of conviction and potentially saying, look, these things must go. I don't know why you have them or why you want them, but they will not be among our household. They will not be in our family. Potentially, he didn't do that. And interesting, now it says among the whole household. So maybe the kids began to embrace some of these same things. And I'll tell you this. Whenever children have an option in a home life, and they have the option of, of living on this spiritual you know, uh, level or living on this spiritual level. They will always choose the lower level. It is, it is the propensity of the flesh. 
when children are presented the option, okay, this is this is dad's commitment to the Lord and this is mom's commitment to the Lord, or vice versa, you know, this is mom's commitment to the Lord, this is dad's commitment to the Lord, they will naturally, they're sinners. They will always be inclined not to follow the, the higher calling of God, but always be inclined to pursue the, the lower nature because the flesh is going to prompt them to. And that's why it is so important that we be as well, you know, unified in our marriages and in our home lives because it, the kids are the ones many times that are at stake. And the Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and they will naturally gravitate. So again, we know that Rachel had brought idols into the home life as well as the fact, no doubt, being among that territory and in the area of Shechem, uh, they were exposed to all kinds of things. They were exposed to all the things that the world had out there, and the family had fallen into idolatry. Again, it may not have been you know, the way we envision our mind today as it was in that day where they had little idols and gave devotions a thing, but you know, foreign gods or idolatry is basically anything that we put before the Lord. And we have all different kinds of idolatry today. You know, we have idolatry in many different forms. Anything that takes priority over the Lord is an idol, the Bible would indicate. And that can come in forms and fashion. It could be in some passion that we have. It can be in some, you know, you know, uh, some possession, whatever it is. Anything that stands between us and our relationship with God, the Bible says, becomes an idol. Uh, and many times in our lives, we need to at times take inventory and evaluate, you know, is there some form of idolatry in my heart? Is there some form of idolatry in our home that, that we need to say, hey, you know what? This is becoming like an idol. This is, we need to deal with this. Uh, and here there was this need. He says, put away the foreign gods, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Again, the idea, again, the indication there is just a cleansing that we needed to remove what was defiling them. He was calling them to this cleansing in their lives. And, and I find it very interesting. Take notice that when there is a spiritual renewal taking place in our hearts or you know, among our family, there, there will be to some level a need for removing and purging certain things from our lives, those things that we identify that stand in the way of our relationship with God. Notice, put away, he says, purify and change. Those are words of spiritual renewal. Purifying, changes. That's part of spiritual renewal. That changes need to come. The obstacles that stand in the way of our relationship with God need to be removed from our lives. And interesting, when he says here, change your garments, you know, it reminds us of a lot of times the terminology we hear in the New Testament, similar things in relation to this where the Bible points out that we are to you know, experience a change as we walk with the Lord. Uh, Paul says this in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 to 24, he says, to put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, in Colossians 3, Paul says very similar things in relation to the Christian life, that the Christian life is much like what he's calling them to do here. It's a life of learning how to continuously put off the old and put on the new. And in some ways, that's almost a daily thing. But at times, I think God brings us to that place where there's a need at times in our lives to be called to a place of decision in regards to separation and dedication. And that means at times we have to put off some old things, maybe put off habits that we've taken on or obstacles that stand in the way and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and the things of God's Spirit the way that he calls us to. So he says, 
cleanse yourselves, and then, once we separate from what's standing in our way, then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there. So again, calling them back to that place where they need to be. And again, as you look throughout the Old Testament, please understand, this seems to be a pattern that periodically is just necessary as a part of the spiritual journey. You read through the Old Testament and you'll take notice that there are times with Moses, with Joshua, with Samuel, where people, the people of God are called to this place of returning back to the Lord. Listen to Joshua's words in Joshua 24. He says there, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Again, Samuel said in 1 Samuel 7, 3, it says that he spoke to the house of Israel saying, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts, listen, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. The point I want you to see is, listen, when the Spirit of God is prompting us and maybe he has been in your life recently and I think sometimes God speaks to us as his people, even maybe corporately, and sometimes there's a need where the Lord calls us to a place and time of decision in regards to separation from what we should not be involved in and a fuller dedication to him where we say, you know what, Lord, there are things that are standing in the way of our spiritual life that we have got involved in, that we have, we have brought into our lives, involved, and they're standing in the way, and we need to separate from those things so that we can fully dedicate ourselves in a greater way to the Lord. And you know, those are important, critical times. And, and I think those times really stem from someone like, again, Jacob hears the call of God upon his life personally, and then he brings that forth into his family. You know, would to God that we would have more men who are hearing God speak to them and are not afraid in their household to call their families to a place of commitment. That, that navigate the spiritual climate of their family and keep them on track with the Lord. You know, it, it begins so often with the men, and that was the case with Jacob here, realizing his family's not in the right spot and redirecting them to where they should be. Verse 4 says, notice, look at the response. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and it seems that they were little amulets, the idea, part of the pagan worship, even the jewelry that they had. And Jacob, notice, hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. In other words, Jacob buried those things. Jacob put an exhortation out to his family. His family saw the conviction in his heart. They saw the fact that he himself was making this commitment, this rededication of himself to God, and his family respected him. They responded to what he did. They took heed to his spiritual leadership. And it says they, they turned things over to Jacob and he buried those things. He put them away. He said, we need to be done with these things. He put them underground. He said, that's it. We need to bury this stuff. And, you know, sometimes we need to take those steps to, to do those very kinds of things on behalf of what's best for our families. Verse 5, and they journeyed, it says, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. 
and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now, take notice here. As they begin to move along, God begins now to honor the commitment and the dedication that they have just given over to him. Because if you remember back at the end of chapter 34, the thing that Jacob was majorly concerned about was what? That as the result of what his sons had just done, that the people of the land were going to attack them and they were going to kill them, that they were vulnerable. In fact, if you look back in chapter 34, uh, verse 30 when the sons got themselves into that murderous activity where they murdered all the males in the territory after they had them in a weakened state, Jacob said in chapter 34, verse 30, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants among the land, among the Canaanites and Perizzites, among the people. Again, this father was saying to his sons, look, what you have just, what are you doing? You've just made me obnoxious in the culture. And, you know, if you're a parent, you've ever had kids that just go out and live off the wall or do some things. And, oh, what are you doing? You got my last name. You know, you're, you, you've made me an obnoxious stench in the community. What are you doing doing that out there? You're going to bring these problems, you know, upon our family. And, and this was his case. You know, what have you done? You've troubled me by your obnoxious behavior, he says. And now I'm becoming obnoxious among the people of the land and he says since i'm few in number they will gather themselves against me and kill me and i shall be destroyed and my household and i now again please understand part of the guilt there is in connection to jacob and his own decisions had he been in the right place he wouldn't have put his children in the compromised position they were in they were more vulnerable to the ways of the world because he chose to go out and live among the world and because he was living in compromise, he was putting his children in a more vulnerable place. But nonetheless, the direct result then of their foolish and obnoxious behavior as his sons brought more problems into their home. And one of the problems was, Jacob says, now that you've gone out and murdered all these people, the consequence is they're going to want to come and murder our family. And we're going to be at risk. And we're just a few amount of people. And we're so outnumbered. And he's terrified that the family is going to be attacked and put to death, but verse 5 tells us that after they're now journeying what? They're journeying on the path of God's calling. Their hearts are now back right in relationship with the Lord. Their lives are back on track with where they're supposed to be spiritually. It says, as they journeyed, notice, the terror of God was upon all the cities that were around them, and notice, they did not pursue them, indicating maybe they were going to pursue them, but God supernaturally intervened and honored and blessed their obedience. You know, I think there's a tremendous principle here. The Bible tells us that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And I think this is a tremendous reminder, too, that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And it does not matter what cost that requires. It doesn't matter what we need to give up, not what we need to put away or put out of our... Listen, it's not about being popular. It's about being right with God. And when we are right with God and we are following God's will, listen, God will intervene supernaturally and he will preserve and protect and he can work on our behalf and God honors obedience. And the safest place to be is right in the center of God's will. We don't have to fear anything if we're in the center of God's will because that is the safest place to be. You see that illustrated in the uh, Gospels with Jesus where Jesus sends his disciples out on the boat to cross over to the other side. Remember, and this horrible storm 
bruise up. And, and they're in the middle of this, like, Euroclidon, these, these vicious storms come, and they do to this day, you know, on the Sea of Galilee. If you look at the way it's situated, because where it's situated at, sometimes, all of a sudden, over the surrounding sort of, you know, hill-like mountainous area around them, a nasty storm will just come down quickly onto the water. It's basically just a, a large lake is all it is. And remember, here they are, they're in the center of this storm, but honestly, they were safer in the middle of that storm than they were back on the land among the people who were trying to promote and make Jesus a king because he just fed them with bread. And there they were in the middle of a storm, but in the middle of the storm was actually right in the center of God's will. And they were safer in the center of that storm because that was God's will than they were back on the land being comfortable. They were safer in a place where they were struggling, but they were where God had put them and where Jesus told them to be than they were safe and dry and comfortable back on the land because spiritually they were way more dependent on the Lord right there than they would have been back on the land where potentially things were easier and sometimes you know, comfortability and, and casualness can many times also bring apathy and kind of an independence and in ways in which we become connected with the world that we shouldn't be. So here, center of God's will, Jacob and the family are safe. And Jacob, it says, verse 6, came to Luz, that is to Bethel, that's what it was renamed, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there. Again, he's obeying the Lord. So again, just a beautiful chapter now. He's, he's back in obedience. He's following what God's told him to do. He builds an altar there. And he calls the place, notice, El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. So as he goes back to Bethel, which he had called the house of God. He builds an altar as God called him to. He restores worship as the priority in his life, the things that were standing in the way of his worship life. He's put those things away. He's back in the place of obedience where God has called him to do. He's where God wants him to be. And he restores the, the worship life. He builds an altar and he calls it El Bethel, which basically means God or God of the house of God. Bethel means house of God. El is God. So he basically calls this altar God of the house of God, which shows you that Jacob is maturing. He's growing. He's understanding now the reality that it isn't just about a place. It isn't just about a spiritual practice. It's about the presence of God himself. He says God of the house of God. See, Many a times, people can be guilty of going to the house of God, but not really going to the God of the house of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? And sometimes people think, well, yeah, I go up to the house of God. I go up to the house of God every week. Well, listen, God isn't so much concerned about us just going to the house of God. He wants us going to the God who's the house of God. Good to go to the house of God, but what are we going for? If we're not going there for God himself, then we're missing the whole point. We're just going through a religious routine. Again, same way. Wonderful to, to come to the word of God, but we need to come to the God of the word, the God of the word of God, to read the word of God because we want God to speak to us, because we're seeking God in his word, not just going through a religious routine. And, and again, this is, I think, when that renewal just really begins to happen in our lives. Notice the thing that Jacob is consumed with now, he's, he's excited about the Lord. 
the presence of the Lord. It's not just, oh, I just, I just want to go to the house of God. No, I want to go to the God of the house of God. I want to be with God. I want to seek God. I want to spend time with God. And you know, when the Lord's really beginning to do a work in our lives, it's amazing how our focus becomes really refined. And what we're really concerned about is God himself and being in his presence and spending time with the Lord. And you know, what a wonderful thing it is when that's the thing that satisfies us. The thing that satisfies us is just God alone. We don't need to be entertained. We need some special activity, some great event. We're just, it's just God. I just want to be with God, in the presence of God. And you can see a real maturity. He calls this altar now, this place of worship. It's about God himself, God, who is the God of the house, the El Bethel. Verse 8, notice that when we are walking where God calls us to walk and in the center of God's will, it doesn't mean an absence of problems or difficulty because verse 8 says, this little insertion here at this time in history, now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, it says, and remember Rebekah was Jacob's mother, the wife of Isaac, Deborah, uh, Jacob's mother's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree, so the name of it was called Elan Bakuth, or basically the terebinth of weeping or the tree of weeping. So uh, in the midst of this time, somebody very important to Jacob dies and passes away. It tells us that this particularly was Deborah, Rebekah's nurse. Remember that when the servant went to get Rebekah as a wife for Isaac, we saw that a number of chapters ago, it tells us that uh, with Rebecca was sent back a nurse. Here we get her name. Her name was Deborah. And many times in that day, the nurse uh, was sort of like, you know, we would use the term today, you know, a governess, you know, someone who in the household basically serves to kind of help raise the children. You know, what, what, I'm thinking of that movie now. What's that movie? Sound of music. There you go. Remember, there's the governess, you know, who raises the children. And she's kind of like the surrogate mother. Now you're all going to be singing that. You know, that's, that's got a doe, a deer, a female deer. Okay, we got our system now. But this is the idea of, of Deborah here. She's a nurse. She's like a governess. So she, no doubt, possibly was very much involved in rearing up Jacob, you know, patching up his skinned up knees and teaching him and caring for him and was kind of involved in his life. So she became very precious to him. And it's very likely that when Rebecca died, his, when he returned back to the land, remember his mother had died at this point. And it's very likely that as a result of that, he went and sought out Deborah when his mother had died, who was much like a mother to him anyway, and said, listen, come stay with me. And in her latter years, you know, come be involved and to kind of serve like a grandmother. Remember, J Jacob had 11 kids, so he had plenty of need for a governess, <laughs> kind of like the Sound of Music guy. So, hey, I got plenty of kids. You know, Deborah, why don't you come and be involved? And at this point, this woman very precious to him, very deeply connected to, it says that she passes and is buried at this time in his life. In verse 9, then God appeared to Jacob again. So again, he has another revelation from the Lord. When he came from Paddan Aram, and the Lord blessed him. And God said to him, verse 10, here's another word from God to Jacob. He says, your name is Jacob. You shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. So what's God do? He reaffirms to Jacob what happened, remember, back in chapter 32 there, where Jacob, it says, 
was wrestling with a man all night when the Lord came and wrestled with Jacob and he broke Jacob and he broke that stubborn independent streak in him and God changed his name and said you've been Jacob up to this point and Jacob meant heel catcher or conniver somebody who always knew how to get ahead of other people he knew just the right way he just needed to snack somebody's heel out and, and he, Jacob just had that personality he could solve all his problems he could always work the system and he was just a very stubborn self-sufficient individual and he was good he was talented and that's why the Lord had to wrestle him because this is one of the biggest obstacles in his life in relationship to him and God. So the Lord wrestled him to get that and, and had to, in a sense, incapacitate an area of his life to get him to the place where then he clinged to God and said, I'm not going to let go unless you bless me. And with tears, he then became utterly dependent upon God, at which point God changed his name to Israel, which means prince of God or literally one who fights with God and prevails. And a way to prevail with God, as we said, is basically submission or surrender as Jacob came to. Many believe the idea of Israel just simply means governed of God, that he went from being governed by himself and his own skills and self-sufficiency to being governed by God as a man and completely dependent. And what happened? Jacob had that experience, but yet like you and I, he regressed back to the old life a little bit. And God's reminding him here, Jacob, what are you doing? That's your old life. Stop acting like Jacob. Jacob, you are a new man. I've changed you. I've called you. I have a new plan for you. And he says, your name's not Jacob anymore. You're Israel now. You're not a conniver anymore. You're governed by God now. Stop controlling your life. Stop doing what you want to do and chasing what you want to chase. Listen, I'm calling the shots in your life now. And he kind of has to reprove Jacob. And sometimes the Lord has to do that for us because what happens? We come to the Lord. The Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone's in Christ, what? He's a new creation. Behold, old things pass away, all things become new. It's a new life. And that new life means there's a Lord of our life now whereby he calls the shots. And we don't do anything unless it's what he wants us to do. Even if it looks great, feels great, sounds great, benefits us, if he's not asking us to do it, we don't do it. We let him call the shots. And many times we start to take control back again. And the Lord has to remind us, what are you doing? That's the old way. I don't want you to live the old way. I want you to live like that new creation. I want you to live with me in complete control of your life. And, you know, maybe recently the Lord has been knocking on your heart in relation to some of these things and saying to you, listen, that's not who you are anymore. Stop living like who you were. Don't regress back. Be the new person that you are, the one who is completely ruled over by Jesus and governed by God. Verse 11, God also said to him, I am God Almighty. And there's that term again, El Shaddai, the term that Abraham heard from God. And that term El Shaddai, even as we sang tonight, basically is a term which means you know, God of sufficiency. It's a term that was, you know, used in relation to the breast. And again, in that culture, the breast was seen as a source of nourishment, of a source and provision to sustain. And the idea, that's the indication there, that God is our source. God is our provision. He, he is what we need to be supplied. I am the sufficient God. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants after you, 
I give this land. So God, we've seen this many times before, he is reaffirming this covenant promise that he gave to Abraham and then passed on to Isaac and then Jacob was to inherit as well. And what's God doing? He's reaffirming his call upon Jacob's life. I love what it says in Romans regarding the nation of Israel. It says the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. The idea is that God's gifts and God's callings, he's not an Indian giver. He doesn't give a calling and then take it back. He doesn't give you gifts and then take them back. Even amidst our failures and our mistakes, God's call upon our life remains. And here God is being so gracious. He doesn't say, Jacob, you know what? I was going to use you, and I had a great plan for your life, but the way you've been acting in this little 10-year you know, season of, of spiritual detour and compromise and the mistakes, you know what, Jacob? I'm sorry. I'm going to have to pick somebody else. God doesn't He's so gracious. And here, again, is this family perfect? Far from it. Is this guy perfect? Far from it. But he's chosen and he's called by grace. And by the grace of God, God reaffirms so lovingly his plan for Jacob's life. He reaffirms that calling. And, you know, sometimes the Lord does that in our lives. He has to come alongside of us and say, look, yes, yes, you made a mistake here. Yes, you got off course there. But listen, you're back on track and I still have the same plan for you. And I want you to pursue it in faith and believe that I can still accomplish what I intend. He says, this is something that I am doing. I, he says, am God Almighty. I've given the land to you, and I intend for you to be fruitful and to multiply. And God's blessing was still on his life. And verse 13, then God went up from him. So it seems that there was some experience with the presence of God. The Lord now goes up from in his midst. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. I just love the way that it says that, you know, the place where God talked with him. Isn't it wonderful that God actually talks with us? You know, part of my devotional read this morning was where Jesus said, you know, my, my sheep know my voice. And, and how wonderful the fact that an almighty God actually talks with us, that God wants to talk to me, that God wants to talk to you. You know, if nothing else inspires you to want to pick up your Bible and read it every day, that's a pretty good uh, incentive there. God wants to talk to you. He wants to talk to you. There are things God wants to say to you. And if God wants to say something to me, by golly, I, I want to hear it. <laughs> there are lots of people that try to talk to me that I wish they didn't. <laughs> Quite honestly, that sounds awful pastoral, doesn't it? But it's just the truth. Uh, None of you, of course. That's just a theoretical example from 1989, someone I was thinking of. Uh, but when God wants to talk to me, man, I'm always going to benefit when God has something to say to me. And how amazing that God, it says, talked with him and God talks with us. It's just a wonderful thing to realize that God communicates with us and says things to us if we allow him the opportunity and our ears are open and our attention is given. So Jacob, it says, set up a pillar in the place where God had talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it. There's the first place we see that in the Bible. And he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him Bethel. Again, a drink offering just seems to, we'll see it later in the law in the Old Testament, seems to be like an, an, a supplementary offering, like an additional offering. The drink offering was a lot of times something they would put on afterwards where they would just pour you know, wine out like a libation or water or whatever. And when they would pour out the drink offering, it would just be consumed. If you ever poured like water in a hot pan and just how it just, 
just sizzles and, and dissipates and dissolves. That was the idea of a drink offering. The idea is just, you know, I want to give something extra to the Lord and be completely consecrated. And later in the New Testament, Paul uses that as a reference to his life, that his life would be poured out like a drink offering. Lord, like that water poured in a hot pan that just completely is consumed and just is dissolved and dissipates. Lord, that's what I want for my life. I just want to pour out my life, whatever. Just dissolve, use my life, completely consume and use every part of my life. And here we see this first reference to a drink offering in relation to worship. And Jacob called the name of that place, verse 15, where God spoke with him, Bethel. Again, beautiful. Bethel, the place we know called the house of God, that's where it says God spoke with him. And, and take note of that, because so often I find in my life that's where God speaks to me. That when I'm in the house of God, where God is at many a times in my life, that is one of the primary places where I know God has spoken with me in my own life. Verse 16, and they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrathah, Rachel... Remember, that was Jacob's favorite wife. She labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. So again, maybe a premature birth, complications, we don't know. Keep in mind, in this day, no OBGYN, no nice hospital facility. I mean, you're talking about on the side of the road. Labor kicks in, pull over, find a comfortable place, and deliver that baby. And and in here, there was some type of a, a complication. The labor process became difficult. And it came to pass, verse 17, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died. And the idea is that the complications of childbirth, she actually died from it. There's such an incredible uh, difficulty in the labor process. She actually died in the midst of it. And so it was, as her soul was departing. Interesting reference to death, isn't it? The soul departing again that separation of the physical body and that which is spiritual and eternal the bible always gives that picture the physical body is not the real us that we have a soul a spirit and that departs from us paul says to be absent from the bodies to be present with the lord he, he says i'd rather depart philippians he says and be with christ which is far better and this is the picture of death in the bible the soul the true part of us the spiritual eternal part departing from the body she is dying at this moment, and she spoke her last words, saying, Call his name Ben-Oni, which literally means son of my sorrow. But his father, Jacob, changed his name to Benjamin, which means instead son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrathah. Notice, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Now, interesting. There in the area Ephrathah, which is called, notice, verse 19 says, ancient Bethlehem, she gives birth to this 12th son of Jacob, which we now have the 12 sons of Jacob, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. About 15 years prior, Rachel gave birth to Joseph and believed that she would have another child. She spoke a prophetic word, and God now honors that prophecy. She gives birth 15 years later to the 12th son, her second son, uh, to Jacob, she's dying in the midst of labor, so she calls out, name his son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. Jacob, being a wise father, recognizes, boy, this, this kid is going to be traumatized his whole life if he realizes his name is son of my sorrow and, and recognizes I'm part of the reason that my mother died. 
Jacob says, boy, that would just be true. So Jacob changes name to Benjamin, son of my right hand. The idea is, is son of prominence. The right hand was a place of rulership. It was, it was a place of importance. And notice all this happens, it says, in Bethlehem. Now, how interesting. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. Think of the two names of this son, son of sorrow and son of my right hand. What a very beautiful, fitting picture, prophetically, of what Jesus was. Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, was a son of sorrow. He was acquainted with sorrows, and he experienced as a suffering servant the sorrows of sin and death. But yet at the same time, now, where is he? He's the son of God's right hand, at the right hand of the Father in resurrection glory as the result of what he did. And how interesting, again, as these things are happening, we see these prophetic glimmerings of what God would ultimately do with Jesus even in the midst of this family situation. Well, verse 21 says, Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben, this is the firstborn son, went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now, we have very little information here. Simply told, the firstborn son Reuben goes in. He has sexual relations with Bilhah, one of the concubines, or again, the idea of one of the wives of his father Jacob. And Israel, which is the name of Jacob, it says he hears about it. He doesn't seem to do anything at all at this time. He doesn't reprove his son. He doesn't deal with his wrong behavior. Again, this seemed to be kind of a weakness in Jacob's life of passivity with his son's erroneous behavior. That This was a problem, it seems, with Jacob. You know, good man in many ways, but he just had a real weakness when it came with confronting his sons with doing wrong things. He just didn't seem to have the strength and the fortitude at times when his sons did wrong things to say, you know what, that is wrong. That's unacceptable. Or what you're doing is... And because of that, many times problems came into the home life as a result of the past. Here it says that he hears about it, but he doesn't do anything. It's not till his dying breath when he's giving out the blessings in Genesis uh, chapter 49, I believe it is, where he finally confronts Reuben with this sin many, many years later. Now, interesting to take note, just as a sidelight here, his firstborn son sleeps with the concubine, or one of his wives, the idea is. Again, whenever you see this taking place in the Bible, this wasn't just about a lustful desire being satisfied. Whenever somebody would do this amongst a household, it was an indication of trying to usurp your power and usurp the throne to take over as head of household. You'll notice in the Old Testament, you'll find places where with David, where one of his sons sleeps with one of his wives. You'll notice the same thing with Solomon and Adonijah. And you'll find this pattern periodically. It's not just uh, just a lustful satisfaction alone in a sexual experience. It's also a way by sleeping with someone's wife, you're trying to usurp the authority of the home by taking over the position of the head of the home in doing such. And you'll see that pattern happen a couple times in the Old Testament. But again... There's no mention of anything. It happens. It's pushed aside and not dealt with. Verse 23 says, Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, again, Reuben, the firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Rachel gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan, 
And Naphtali and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. And these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram, so the twelve sons which become the twelve tribes of Israel. And then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And I guess that's a fair estimate for 180 years old. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And again, we take notice, at the death of their father, what happens? The death of their father, the two sons, the two brothers, again, we find them coming together, working in cooperation, setting aside prior animosities. And isn't it interesting that the second time we've seen this, we saw the same thing with Isaac and Ishmael. Remember, it was at the death of a parent that family animosity and antagonism between them, the death of a loved one. It's a very powerful thing in a person's life, the death of a loved one. They come back together in unity and they work together in cooperation to respectfully bury their parent. And here again, we don't have, other than the one reuniting experience, we don't have a lot of mention of Esau and Jacob having a lot of interaction with one another, but at the death of their father Isaac, they both come together they respectfully give him a burial that he deserves. And, you know, again, what a fitting reminder of how death, hard as it is. You notice in this chapter, three references to death. It's a part of life. And, and you can be in the center of God's will and doing everything right, but it doesn't mean the absence of problems. Because here Jacob is back on track spiritually with his family. Verse 8, he loses someone very special in his life. Uh, it tells us in verses uh, 16 down through verse 20, he loses his wife. And now here in verses 28 and 29, he loses his father. And he's completely right with God. He's in the center of God's will, but part of life is death and dealing with death. And the amazing thing is, is God has a way, does he not? All of us who've been a part of the death process, losing loved ones, whether it's a spouse or a parent or, or someone, it's amazing what God can get accomplished even in death. I see it all the time. How you know, families who had issues, how sometimes it takes almost the death process to get people to interact and to work through things and to come back together. And it's amazing how out of death, God can restore and bring life to things. And of course, the most fitting picture of that is what? Jesus. It was out of the death of Jesus that life became available. And, you know, just a beautiful thing to see how God, again, coordinating, working all things for his plans and for his purposes. Well, why don't we stop there? We're out of time. We'll pray and next week read ahead chapter 36. We'll look at a genealogy. And then chapter 37 begins then this life of Joseph, the next patriarch that we'll see that will carry us through the remainder of the book of Genesis, we'll begin to follow Joseph's life. Father, thank you for tonight and the time to study the word of God. And Lord, we pray for ourselves as those in this room. Lord, the things you've spoken to us, that we would be responsive to them. Lord, that we would hear you talking to us. And Lord, we wouldn't ignore your voice when you do. Lord, if you're calling us to get up 
and to get to the place in relationship with you where you know that we're supposed to be, that maybe we're not. We pray that we would be responsive, that, Lord, we would put out of our life and change anything we need to, that we might be back into right relationship with you. Lord, help us, like the church of Ephesus, if we've left our first love, to repent, Lord, to again do the first works that we did when we were right in relationship and deeply in love with you. Help us by your grace, Lord, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen.